This morning we're going to read out of John 17, and as we read the Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus' life, the stories given to us of him walking on the earth, every single Gospel, the entire Gospels are really this, this march of Jesus towards the cross. And um, as he approaches the cross, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows what is coming. He knows he's going to be betrayed by one of his 12 disciples. He knows he's going to be denied, that they're going to scatter, that his disciples are going to leave him. He knows that he's going to be handed over, and he knows he's going to go on trial that's just a mockery, that he's going to be scourged, that he's going to go to the cross, he's going to die, and he's going to be placed in the tomb. He knows all these things are going to happen, and he agonizes over it. We have the picture of him in the garden praying to his father, asking that the, the cup of, of wrath might be removed, that he might not have to go to the cross, but he's willing anyway, right? And, and this whole book is, all the gospels are him moving towards the cross. And with all this agony on him, it's amazing that he could think of anything but that. But in John chapter 17, where we have this, what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, we get a glimpse into what Jesus was thinking about, what was on his heart as he journeyed to the cross, as he was approaching his death. What's amazing is that he actually had us on his mind. And I would argue that as he was hanging on the cross, he had us, he had his church on his mind and in his heart. Well, here's what he prays. We can actually see that he takes time to pray for us in John chapter 17. And I'll put it up there too. Starting at verse 11, the last part of the verse. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Here he's praying for his disciples, his 12 guys. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that you may be one, even as we are one. That that my disciples might be so united that they would reflect the oneness of Father and Son. And then drop down to verse 20, where he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Folks, right there, Jesus Christ is praying for you and for me. For those who would believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles, which we have now in the Holy Scriptures, if we are followers, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he's praying for us right here. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. So, five verses, and in these few verses, four times, Jesus prays that his church, his followers, his people, would be one. What do you think was on Jesus' mind as he was going to the cross? His church, that we would be one, that we would live in unity, the same kind of unity that existed between the Father and the Son and continues to exist from eternity to eternity. This was Jesus' grand vision for the church, that we would be one. And this is also the very focus, I believe, of today's text, the passage that Colleen read, if you now turn to 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, and I'm going to read it again through verse 18. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I'm going to stop there. So we find here just a central theme. You can see it in verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. This is basically a restatement of what Jesus was praying for, of Jesus' grand vision for his people that we might be one. So to be at peace among yourselves speaks really to a group of brothers and sisters who are, who are unified, who prioritize having right relationships with each other, who, who prioritize reconciliation with one another, and, and in our lives together emanate a sacrificial love for one another. Because if unity and peace are to reign in the church, if we're to be one like Jesus wants us to be one, then the kind of love that Jesus himself embodied must be the kind of love that we express to each other as well. And I would argue, I would say it this way, that Christ must mean enough to us. He must be worthy enough to us. His work must mean enough to us. We must love him enough. We must want his glory enough. He must mean enough to us that we all mean the world to each other. You see that? Because if we're that close to his heart, if our unity and love is that close to his heart, that if he means anything to us, then we better mean the world to each other. Now, in the real world, though, there's people. And love is practiced with real people. We don't practice love in a vacuum. And so what Paul and his friends here are going to do is they're going to give us five people or five groups of people who were ordered to love in very specific ways. And the first um, person or the first group of people is the leaders. We, we owe our love to those who lead the church. Look at verse 12. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So, so leaders are the ones who labor among you, they're working among you. It says they're over you in the Lord, which gives, the, gives you a picture of their office, of their leadership capacity, of, of, their, of their place as leaders, and then they also admonish you. And if, if we don't love those who lead, if we don't love those who are leading in the church, how can there be peace? Because often it's easier to critique, it's easier to demand things from our leaders than it is to do what God requires. And here's what he requires. As our leaders labor among us, verse 12 says we're to respect them for their work, for the work that they do. As they exercise authority, as they are over you in the Lord, we are, verse 13 tells us, to esteem them very highly because of their office, because of their God-given place in the church. Esteem them very highly. 
And then thirdly, as they admonish us, and that's basically as they warn us, as they instruct us, as they teach us, we are to, verse 13, love them. So respect, esteem, and love. And when people admonish us, when they tell us, hey, you need to behave this way, you need to live this way. You need to think this way. Because if you don't, here's the consequence. When people admonish us, it's difficult to love us. Who, who amongst us loves people to tell us what to do? Or tells us that we're in error or in sin or going the wrong way? Nobody does, so we have to work harder to love them. Now, I'm not going to go very much further with these two verses. Uh, back in the fall, you may remember, we spent several weeks looking at chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians and talking about leaders, elders, deacons, ministry leaders in that context. So I'm not going to spend more time here, but I will say this. I think I can speak for the leaders of this church, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, staff, in, in saying to you that the way that you could love your leaders best is to pray for them. So if I can ask you for one thing, <laughs> I got an amen from an elder. If I can ask you for one thing, to love us, to pray for us, pray for us regularly, we need that perhaps more than anything. Now in verse 14, we meet this triad of, of specific groups of, of people in the church that we're to love. And the first is the idol. It says, admonish the idol, I-D-L-E, idol, or another word for that would be the, the lazy ones, okay? Admonishment, as we saw in, in verse 12 there, admonishment is warning and instruction, and it's specifically warning and instruction in regards to conduct, and in, in, in regards to our behavior and how we live. So leaders we see are to admonish the entire church, but now the entire church is called to admonish the idle or the, the lazy, the ones who aren't working, the ones who are taking but not giving, now, we may think that it's loving to stay out of people's business, right? Keep your nose to yourself. You see something do, somebody doing something wrong. Well, you know what? Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody sins. Don't say anything to them. It's going to be just fine. Just let it, let's have peace, okay? No, let's not have any conflict. We may think that it's loving to stay out of their business, but in reality, it's more loving when you see someone walking down a dangerous path to correct them before they go off a cliff. That's more loving. It's more loving as a parent to disciple your children when they misbehave or disobey rather than letting them go their own way and seeing how that turns out in their future. Admonishment carries with it an element of warning which is like, shape up, <laughs> don't do that, don't go that way, and also a, an element of consequence, so warning and consequence, shape up or else, this is what's going to happen. Bad things will, will be in your future if you continue on this path, it's, it's a corrective, it's rescue, and it's for the sake of the person who's being admonished. We don't admonish people because we're annoyed with them. We don't admonish them because their behavior drives us nuts. We admonish them when they're walking into danger. And because of that, admonishment isn't hateful. It's not unthoughtful. It's not judgmental. Admonishment is an act of love that can save a life. 
And so the admonishment that the idol need or the lazy need is a reorientation really to the gospel or a reminder of right belief and right action. The fact that in the gospel, God sends Jesus to freely save us by grace and that that grace transforms us to obedience. The gospel should result in productivity rather than laziness. So for all of us, we don't love people when we ignore their sin. Just because we're scared to hurt their feelings or we're scared to confront or we don't want to be in conflict. So if you see a brother or sister living dangerously, then lovingly admonish them, which takes both grace and truth. Okay, the second group of people that are commended to us to love are the faint-hearted. Another way to put faint-hearted is to say those who are discouraged. It says there in verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. If you, if you think about the word faint-hearted, it's, it's really a discouragement at the soul, at the heart level, at the core of who you are. And, and the word encourage here means to console someone, to comfort them, to cheer them up. It describes coming alongside a person who's discouraged and simply being present with them, being a friend. Sometimes we just need to reach out and remind people that they are not alone. And of course, we find our best example of comfort and consolation in Jesus himself. Jesus didn't stay at a distance and stay in heaven. Instead, he came down, came alongside us to comfort us and to redeem us. And I know that there are many in this room listening and online listening who live in constant discouragement. Perhaps you struggle with depression or, or fear. Maybe you are, you're lonely or isolated. Maybe you feel lonely even in a crowd. Maybe you're faint-hearted because you're worried about the future. No matter how hard you try, you can't seem to find joy. You don't see, see hope. You, you feel like you're stuck in a, in a bog or in a dark room. And even on a sunny day, the sun is out for everyone else except for you. And if you're faint-hearted, I want to let you know that you have a family in this church who loves you and who wants to encourage you who wants to come alongside you, who wants to put courage into you and comfort and console and cheer you up. Your job simply is to let someone know. And sometimes that's hard, but I would encourage you to reach out, to talk to someone. And, and for all of us, whether you're faint-hearted or not, look around you. Who is there who is silently suffering, who's, who's de depressed or discouraged or isolated or faint-hearted? And ask yourself the question prayerfully, who and how would God, God give to me and put in front of me? How would I be present with someone in their pain and in their loneliness? Church, we have the resources to encourage the faint-hearted. For one, we have the Holy Spirit that God's given us to put in us. He's put him in us, and he's indwelt him with us. He's given us that power. And then secondly, we have the relational capacity to come alongside others in the body of Christ and encourage them in their discouragement. All that we need to do is do it. So will you look for somebody to encourage? 
The third group of people we see here is the weak in verse 14. It says, to help the weak. And the weak are the sick, the delicate, the helpless. They are the most vulnerable people in a community. So in our church, they would be the, the poor, the powerless. In the, in the scriptures, they would have been the, the, the fatherless, the orphan and the widow and the sojourner. It could include those who are young in their faith, those who are socially vulnerable for some reason or another, those who have a, have a weak conscience or, or a physical disability or a mental disability. It could be someone who struggles with a propensity towards a certain, a particular sin or, or an addiction. There are plenty of weak people in our midst and, and, and many of us are some of them. And the command here refers to helping the weak and specifically helping them because we have a vested interest in their welfare. That's what the word means right there. Not just help them, but help them because we have a vested interest in them. You know, this month started spring training for Major League Baseball. And out of all the, out of all the professional sports, baseball is the one I love. Um, and so I get excited in the spring and then April, as soon as games start rolling around, just love to follow baseball. And many baseball players are multi-million dollar players. They have these huge astronomical ungodly um, uh, paychecks, basically. And teams, these professional teams have invested in these players. They have invested millions of dollars in these players. And so when a player gets injured, especially one who's worth millions... They don't say, hey, just rub some dirt on it and get back out there like you used to do in Little League. They take major precautions. They put them on a, an injured list, you know, and they spend millions of dollars on doctors and, and rehab and sports medicine to get them back to where they're healthy before they put them back on the field. They will invest and help and care for the weak because they want them to be healthy so that they can be whole and productive with the rest of their career. And it's because these teams have a vested interest in these players that they do it. Well, this is the same kind of vested interest, minus the millions of dollars, that we have in one another's health and strength, especially those who are weak. But what we tend to do with the weak is to become impatient with them, to see them maybe as a drain on our time or on our energy, we have a hard time seeing those who are weak as actually being a part of us. But if the Bible is true, then everyone who is weak in the body is a member of the body. They have, we have a vested interest in them just as they have a vested interest in us. Now, American individualism has taught us to kind of be blind to that kind of interconnectedness and inter dependence, but the Bible tells us that the church should be so interconnected that our brothers or sisters' weakness is our weakness. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And there comes a time when we must be willing to stoop down and carry someone else on our back, no matter how much it slows us down. The strong must be willing to bend to the weak. And I have a tendency to think 
that most of us, if we were to assess ourselves, would put ourselves in the strong category. Am I right? Not the weak. That's everybody. Everybody else is the weak category. So we're looking at how can I help the weak? Because I'm the strong. Well, here's the thing. If you see yourself as strong, then you should constantly be bending down to help the weak. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says this, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And our perfect example, as this passage continues, is Christ, who is pure strength, pure power. Christ, who joyfully takes on weakness because of his vested interest in us, who are weak. That's the example that Jesus gives us. Now, at the risk of offending half of you or all of you, I'm going to do a little mind exercise, a little thought experiment in applying this issue to something that's front and center of our lives right now. It's something I've already talked about today. It's the hot, loaded topic of face masks. So when it comes to wearing a face mask, how do we love others by helping the weak? Now, as leaders of the church, we've postured ourselves in two ways. We've kind of had this twofold posture in regards to the coronavirus. So not only on the one hand do we want to live in a way that honors the words of Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, by submitting ourselves to governing authorities, but on the other hand, and even more importantly, much more importantly, our desire is to love and care for the most vulnerable in our community by taking measures to impede the spread of this virus. I mean, it's a pretty significant, fairly practical, and pretty simple way to help those among us who are elderly, who are immunosuppressed, who are perhaps on chemotherapy or at the end of chemotherapy, those of us who have chronic heart or lung disease. I mean, there's many people in our community that are vulnerable. To us, it seems like a simple way to help the weak. Now, I get that you may disagree. You may disagree vehemently with the effectiveness of that piece of cloth that's on your face. You might see a mask as a symbol of weakness. Whether it's, okay, if I wear this, I'm, or, or if the church makes me wear this, we're, we're in complicity or, or we're in blind obedience to a corrupt government. Or, or there's an irrational fear of sickness or death behind it. Or there's a lack of backbone to stand up when our, when our rights are being trampled. And now, don't get me wrong, I think there is a necessary place for moral courage in the face of evil, in the face of injustice, in the, in the face of immorality. But folks, mask wearing is not that hill to die on. Some, and I think there are those who consider themselves to be strong, want to help the weak by flaunting their strength. But if you think you are strong and you want to imitate Jesus, then you will actively lay down your rights by joyfully taking up a symbol of weakness and use your strength to serve the weak. And to be unwilling to do even this as a point of admonishment can be a sign of spiritual weakness in itself. Now, the final group of people we are to love, which we find in verse 14, is very broad. It's all-encompassing. It's all. <laughs> Everyone. 
Be patient with them all. And patience is perhaps the most difficult virtue to practice in community because what it means is I have to overlook foibles and weaknesses of other people. I have to put up with people who irritate me. I have to be willing to fellowship with those with whom I hold differing opinions and maybe even seriously different opinions on things that really matter to me. It means I have to forgive others when I'm hurt or when I'm offended. It means I have to pursue relationship over correctness, over being right. It means that sometimes I have to bite my tongue. And some of us have large wounds on our tongue. We have to bite them all the time. It means biting our tongue. It means wrestling down the, the temptation to jump ship and find better people to go to church with. Because if we're honest, what we want is what we want. We want a church to be the way we want it to be. We want to enjoy being around the people that we find there. We'd rather be around people who don't get under our skin. Is that true? Okay, it's not just me. But the church is a family, right? And we don't get to choose our family. Jesus chooses our family. And regardless of who our family is, patience is the call to stick with them even when they drive us nuts. As the most famous chapter in the Bible reminds us, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. To make the call for patience a little bit more poignant, Paul adds verse 15 here. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Because you see, in the church, someone will inevitably offend us. Someone will inevitably hurt you, sin against you, say something bad about you, maybe behind your back. Somebody will steal from you or take something that is yours. Someone will snub you or call you a name. And our natural response to that, our natural in the world flesh response is usually anger and then some kind of retribution, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But to live patiently with all is to commit to living lives of grace and forgiveness even in the face of offense, of being offended to seek reconciliation, to seek restoration in relationship when relationship is wounded, even when it wasn't our fault. To extend grace to others who don't deserve it and when they don't extend it back to us. God's people are not to live governed by anger or vengeance, but by grace, patience, and forgiveness. And this is especially important, I think, in a time when our culture is bent on division, bent on incivility, bent on being hostile to one another, bent on retribution. 
And then pile on top of that, we're all tired. We've all got COVID fatigue. We're all, I want to say hangry. Maybe we are hangry. It's almost lunchtime. We're over this pandemic, right? We're just sick of it. We're, we're angry about it. But, but as Christians, as those who take the name of Christ, Christ ones, we are to embody the exact opposite of, of these things that the world lives out in our lives together so that we can fulfill Jesus's grand vision that he has for us. Now, to live at peace, I understand with one another in the church, it's a tall order. And God knows that we're weak. God knows that we will struggle with it. God knows that it's nearly impossible. Well, it is impossible for us to live in grace and harmony and peace and oneness with, with each other in ourselves. It's so much easier to cut bait. It's, it's so much easier uh, to go our own way and to take care of number one. But that is not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of the gospel. The outflow of the gospel is one of love. But, but because God knows he's difficult, that it's difficult for us, he has given us three gifts, which are laid out here in verses 16 through 18. And when we take up these three gifts, I think we will be blown away because we'll find ourselves living at peace with one another in a way maybe we've never experienced before. And the first of those gifts is joy. Rejoice always, verse 16. God gives us joy, can give us joy, even when we don't feel it, even in the midst of, of difficulty and sorrow. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And there are times, I admit, when we will need to borrow joy from somebody else. We'll need to borrow joy from God, from the Holy Spirit, because we don't have it in ourselves. We'll need to find it in the strength of others. So as we come together, even to worship, that's part of why we gather to worship, is to borrow joy from each other. As we worship our Savior and our King, He gives us joy. Rejoice always. Secondly, He gives us the privilege of prayer, which is one of the greatest, if not the greatest privilege that Jesus gives us in the gospel. Pray without ceasing. It's the ability that without ceasing, anytime we want, we can come into God's own throne room and approach boldly the throne of grace to find help in time of need. We have continuous access to the Father. He's not far away from us. He's right next to us. In fact, he dwells in us through the Spirit, and he helps us in time of need. What a gift prayer is. And then thirdly, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Gratitude is the third gift that God gives us to live at peace with each other. And practicing gratitude even when, he, when it doesn't make sense, actually transforms us. To train yourself to look at every moment of the day as an opportunity to say, thank you. Thank you, God, for this difficult person you've put right in front of me. Thank you, God, for loving me through the beautiful sunrise this morning. Thank you, God, for taking away that hour of sleep so I could be with your people and enjoy an extra hour of daylight this evening, folks. Say thank you for everything. Learn to practice gratitude all the time in all circumstances. And finally, this is how they end it. Verse 18, 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So to live at peace is God's goal for us. It's this grand vision. And, and, and to do so, we must be people who practice and live in joyful, prayerful, grateful lives. And to do that means that we're people of the gospel. People who swim in an ocean of grace. People who know that God dwells in them and empowers them and equips them and helps them and advocates for them all the time. We're people, because of the gospel, whose identity is secure in our Savior. And because of that, we can boldly, courageously live joyful, prayerful, grateful lives as we seek oneness and peace with each other to honor our King and his grand vision for us. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus who took on our weakness, became weak, that we might become strong. In his strength, he brought himself low so that he might exalt us and raise us high and bring us to you. Father, we thank you that you've given us the gift of joy. Thank you that you've given us the gift of of prayer, you've given us the gift of gratitude so that we can love our leaders, so that we can love the idol, so that we can love and encourage the faint-hearted, so that we can help the weak and so that we can be patient with each other. And God, my prayer is that your spirit would be moving in this room today, that this morning you would be working on hearts and, and kneading into them your grace and your love, your patience, your goodness, your courage, your boldness, your humility. Lord, would you, would you work these in all of us? God, open our eyes to those who are faint-hearted. Give us courage to admonish those who are idle. Give us, give us the will and the ability to help those who are weak and the humility to do that. And, and God, give us, uh, give us a 100% punch of your Holy Spirit so that we can be patient with each other. God, we want you to be honored at First Baptist Prineville. Our desires is that Jesus would be glorified every time that believers are together as part of this body because we're loving each other so well. We need you to do it, so we ask for your help. We pray this in your name. Amen.